today we're going to finish our series on Meals with Jesus. And uh, today's passage comes from Luke chapter 24, verses 18 to 43. Uh, it's a little bit of a long passage, but you can follow along in your bulletins as it's being read aloud. So Luke 24, 18 to 43. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. As I said, we're uh, finishing this series on meals with Jesus today. And uh, this, this meal is actually a pretty fascinating meal to look at. And it's a little bit different than the previous meals we looked at, simply for the fact that this is the disciples eating with the resurrected Jesus Christ. Now, the average person in New York probably dismisses a story like this and says it's, uh, it's a myth or it's a fable. But Luke here, he is trying to actually hit home on the fact that this is not just some kind of story, this is not some myth, this is not some fable, but this is something that actually happened. And you can tell that he's trying to impress this upon the readers for a couple reasons. So for example, when Luke is telling the story about these two disciples talking about what had just happened, and uh, we didn't look at the entirety of the, the story or the conversation, but what Luke does is he names one out of the two disciples. He names Cleopas. Why, why does he name one disciple and not name the other disciple? Well, there's an important book that I had to read in seminary by a New Testament scholar named Richard Bauckham, who studies this period. And uh, he says that the reason Luke named Cleopas and not the other disciple is because Cleopas was generally a well-known person in the ancient world. So Luke is essentially saying, 
Cleopas was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. And if you don't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead, go ask Cleopas. He will testify to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And of course, in the ancient world where you don't have technology, you don't have certain things, how do you confirm uh, uh, the validation of a truth statement? Well, you did it primarily through the testimony of eyewitnesses. And so Luke is saying, I know this is a a crazy claim, and I know uh, many people will be skeptical at first, but there are people who have actually witnessed it, and so go ask them. You know, the other interesting thing is there's, there's all these little details in here that you wouldn't really uh, think would be included unless uh, it's something that actually happened. So, for example, at the end of it, uh, he tells us that the disciples gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it. And again, you have to ask yourself, why, why does he specify that it was broiled fish? Why not just say he gave him food, he gave him fish, maybe it was baked fish, whatever it was. And uh, again, he's, these details are included to kind of convey the fact that, look, this is not being made up, but these are things that are actually, that actually happened. Uh, I, I saw it, and I want to testify to it. I want to be a testimony to it. And uh, I think modern people, when we think about people who believe in the resurrection, at least in the ancient world, maybe we have a little bit of uh, arrogance about us, and we say, well, people were probably a little bit more gullible back then. They weren't as scientific back then. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, people would have had a hard time believing in the reality of the resurrection even back then. Because if you look at it here, even his very own disciples can't believe what they're seeing. They're, they're thinking, uh, you know, are we just seeing a spirit? Maybe some people are thinking, am I just dreaming? Is this some kind of hallucination? And Jesus has to kind of convince him and say, look, I'm right here. It is I. It is I myself. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. I am here physically present with you in the flesh. Give me some food. I'm going to eat it, and I'm going to show you I'm actually here. Now, the importance of the truth of the resurrection, it cannot be understated because if Jesus was not really raised from the dead in bodily form in history, there is actually no reason to be a Christian at all. There's no reason to be a Christian at all. But if Jesus was raised, then the opposite of is true. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then there is no reason not to be a Christian because this changes everything everything really hinges upon the resurrection. You know, a couple weeks ago, you know these Monday Bible studies that we, uh, that we have with the other churches? You know, I was leading one of these studies, um, and someone had asked me uh, a question that her friend asked her, and uh, her friend was asking her, you know, if you're a Christian, how do you know that, uh, that when you pray, how do you know Jesus is real, and you're not just praying to some kind of imaginary friend, right? How is that different from let's say, a child who, has, who makes up and creates uh, an imaginary friend. And if you think about it, that, that's, that's actually a pretty good question to ask, right? How do you know whether uh, Jesus is real? How do we know that when we're praying, that when we're gathered here in worship, how do we know that we're actually worshiping someone who is real? And uh, the heart, I think the heart of that question is basically this. How do we know that, uh, that Christianity is not something that we just kind of made up in our minds, uh, how do we know it's not just some, some kind of uh, form of therapy to help us cope with some of the hard things in life? And the response I would say is one of the ways we know is based on a historical reality that Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead, then Jesus is real. <laughs> then he ascended into heaven. And he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty as we confess in the Apostles' Creed. If Jesus wasn't raised, then yeah, Christianity is made up. Our faith is in vain. 
And we should be a people to be pitied, most of all. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, a few years ago, I was, uh, I was having this conversation about Jesus with a Jewish man. And as I was, I was, as I was talking about the Christian perspective of Jesus and uh, how Christians understand the Bible and especially the, what we call the Old Testament, what they would call the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, it was interesting. He got visibly upset with me, right, as I was talking. <laughs> he, was, he was just like, and I could see he was getting angry. And uh, he said to me, man, right, everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did, it was in clear violation of the Torah. It was in clear violation of uh, what I believe the Hebrew scriptures are about. And from his perspective, the New Testament was so offensive to him because uh, he thinks it twists the meaning of uh, the Hebrew scriptures by saying that everything is about Jesus. And you read the things that Jesus did, like healing on the Sabbath or all these controversial things that he got in trouble for uh, in the gospel narratives. And he says, uh, if Jesus really believed in the Old Testament or in the Hebrew scriptures, he wouldn't do that. That's, that's wrong. And because he was a little bit hostile towards me, uh, you, know, I, you know, my heart started beating a little bit faster. And uh, I wanted to disarm him. So uh, what I said was, you know, you're absolutely right. I think you are 100% correct. If I was in your shoes or if I was a Jewish per person, especially during the time of Jesus, I probably would have been upset too. Because I agree that Jesus, what Jesus does and says is so radical that it, it just requires this pretty dramatic paradigm shift in terms of how you understand the scriptures, how you understand the world, in order to accept what he said and what he did. I 100% agree with you. And he, right, he softened up a little bit. He's like, oh, okay, you understand, right? Nodding in agreement. Uh, and he, he, as if to say, like, you know, okay, you get where I'm coming from. But then I asked him this, and I said, well, if you think about it, if that is the normal default response that a typical Jewish person is supposed to have, why do you think so many Jewish people made that dramatic paradigm shift and started to follow Jesus and interpret scriptures in that way after Jesus died? Why would they do that? And he said, huh, I never thought about that. I, I'm not sure what the answer is. I'm sure there's a good historical explanation. But you know, you know what I said? I said, scholars can't find a good historical explanation uh, for an alternative. How so many Jewish people completely, uh, dramatically turned their understanding of how they understood God, how they understood the, our old version of the Old Testament, why they changed, especially after Jesus died. Because after uh, uh, the Messiah dies, a movement usually fades with him. But after Jesus died, the Christian movement exploded. And I said, I think the best, most reasonable explanation they met Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and they saw him. You see, something dramatic happened during the days of Jesus' resurrection, and Luke here, he is giving us the inside story, and this story begins with two disciples, and even look here in the passage, Luke is showing them, they're very disappointed because the person that they thought was the Messiah, the person that they thought was the Christ, he died, he was crucified, and therefore on the road to Emmaus, they run into the resurrected Jesus, but they don't recognize him, and Jesus basically asks them, you know, what are you guys talking about? And they say in verse 31, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. In other words, what they're saying is we're talking about Jesus, how he died and how our hopes are completely dashed. We thought he was the one. We thought he was the one that was going to make Israel a great nation again, but he could not have been because he is dead. He was crucified. And uh, some people, I think, think that 
you know, I, I have so many doubts. If I just saw Jesus with my own two eyes physically, if he was here in bodily form, then it would have been so easy for me to, to believe. Uh, but I'm not really so sure that that's the case because uh, if you look at here, even though Jesus appeared to his disciples, it wasn't easy for them to believe with their own eyes as well. I imagine that if we saw Jesus, uh, the resurrected Jesus, in, in the flesh, so to speak, maybe we would conclude, I must be going crazy. I must be seeing things. I must be dreaming or I must be hallucinating because it would be so hard to accept and to believe something like that would happen, especially if we have this modern scientific way of looking at the world. And you see the disciples here, they have a very similar reaction. And their reaction is, uh, we must have seen a spirit or we must have seen a ghost. And they don't think that they're seeing Jesus resurrected from the dead. And Jesus has to respond and say, why are you troubled? Why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, see my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And he's saying this, I'm right here, right? Look at me, look at me, I'm here. You see, the fascinating part of the story, I think, actually concerns the reaction around uh, these disciples here. After spending, right, th maybe three years with Jesus, they didn't play it very cool, and they're not portrayed as people who were expecting this to happen, right? They're not portrayed as people kind of saying, oh, Jesus, you rose from the dead. We were waiting for this, right? Hello. They're disappointed because Jesus died and was crucified, and when Jesus does appear, they're, they're just like, what, right? Who is this man? They are foolish ones. They are slow of heart. They are troubled. They are filled with doubts in their hearts. But the reason why this particular meal is so uh, encouraging for us today is because I think it shows us that even in the midst of doubts, even in the midst of the doubts of his disciples, it really does show us how patient and how gracious Jesus is with doubters. And it also shows how he enables doubters to overcome their doubts. You know, doubt is probably one of those words that need a little bit of nuance. Uh, doubt is generally not seen as a positive thing or a good thing in the Bible when it's the kind of doubt that questions the promises of God because ultimately what it does is it questions the character of God. But in the Bible, doubt is also not something like intellectual curiosity, uh, but doubt is a kind of a rebellion, uh, a disbelief, that God is who he says he is and God will do what he said he, will, he is going to do. But I think there is um, kind of maybe an intellectual curiosity that a lot of people have, and maybe in our culture we might call that doubt as well, where we're looking for answers, right? And sometimes these doubts, I think, can deepen our faith, especially when we find those answers. So uh, I don't think those doubts are all that bad. I think it's good to ask and wrestle with questions that we may have and look for uh, answers You know, some people, I think, maybe approach faith as uh, this kind of blind belief in spite of the evidence. And so uh, by blind belief, I don't mean belief in things that are unseen, but I mean in spite of evidence to the contrary, right? And the potential downside is that you never really wrestle with uh, hard, difficult questions in life that other people could be wrestling with. And ironically, that could lead to a faith that is a little bit shallow and disingenuous. But on the other extreme, uh, it's not good, and something our culture is very good at is just to doubt everything, right? And that extreme is not good either because when you doubt everything, 
you don't really have anything firm to stand on. You don't really have any convictions. And when you don't have anything firm to stand on, it basically leads to chaos and anarchy. And maybe a, a good illustration or dynamic to describe this is uh, our relationship with the news today. Uh, if you read any news website or blog or anything that you see on social media without some kind of discernment, uh, or if you only read things in which uh, it agrees with your particular perspective, then you probably end up with a very shallow perspective of the world, right? On the other hand, if you doubt all news and you say everything is fake news, then you become paralyzed because uh, you never really have a sense of what is true in the world. Luke, I think here, he's actually trying to show us that the early faith of the disciples, it's not this blind faith in spite of the evidence, because the evidence is the risen Jesus Christ. The evidence is right there. But he also shows us that they weren't left in this perpetual state of doubt, but rather their faith was a faith that was grounded in a historical reality. They asked for evidence, and Jesus showed it to them by showing them his pierced hands and by eating some fish. And you see Jesus here, he's patient with their doubts, and he spent time with them so that they could go from a place of doubt to a place of great and deep faith. You think about it, where, where these uh, disciples are in this moment, and you read the book of Acts, and you see what the disciples end up doing in terms of building this uh, Christian movement, preaching the gospel, go from uh, be willing to suffer the consequences of preaching the gospel. And I think the moment that their faith was made stronger and solidified was probably here. And we see Jesus, what he's able to do with them. How else can you explain how they went from this place of hopelessness to a place of great joy? How else can you explain why they began to radically reinterpret the Hebrew scriptures in view of Christ? How else can you explain why they were willing to put their lives on the line and make such great sacrifice for the sake of the gospel? I think Jesus transformed them through this meal, and he enabled them to have this deep faith filled with deep conviction. You know, there's a story, a uh, famous story towards the end of the Gospel of John focused on a disciple named Thomas. And Thomas is often labeled as, quote-unquote, doubting Thomas because he doubted that Jesus was raised from the dead. And he just didn't believe it when the other disciples said, look, Jesus rose from the dead. And he would say, you know, unless I see in his, uh, in his hands the mark of nails, unless I place my finger into the marks of nails and place my hand into his side, I will never have belief. And Thomas doubts, and he says, show me the evidence. Well, eight days later, Jesus appears before him and says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, of course, it would have been better if, uh, it would have been nice if Thomas didn't have any doubts and he could just believe, and maybe it wouldn't have led to this uh, or maybe it wouldn't have led to this kind of uh, climactic confession of faith where Thomas ultimately says, my Lord and my God. Maybe the doubts and maybe Jesus' patience and grace towards Thomas gave him this deeper faith and greater conviction. You know, I know some of us, we may have certain doubts of our own. But I think one of the things that this meal shows us is that Jesus is very patient, even very patient with his own disciples when they doubt. It also shows us that Jesus, he has the ability to transform doubts and cultivate a kind of faith that is deep, a kind of faith that stands on deep convictions. And how does this happen here? Well, we see two ways. I think the first way is Jesus re-educates the mind, and the second way is Jesus fills our hearts. 
Uh, first, Jesus, he re-educates their minds. Now, I, I don't know if re-education is like the best word to describe what's happening here because uh, I think it's more than just simply a, an intellectual exercise. But if you look at what Jesus hap- is doing here, he, he does essentially like this little Bible study with his disciples and he begins to tell them what the Bible is ultimately about. In verse 27, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then later in verse 44, which is not printed in the bulletin, he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. And through this little Bible study, what he's doing is he's showing them what the Bible what their Hebrew scriptures is ultimately about, what it was talking about all along. You see, it's not primarily about the nation of Israel. It's not primarily about uh, the Messiah being this political figure who would make Israel into a great nation. And it's not even primarily about how to keep the law. But ultimately, it is a book about Jesus, namely, specifically, his death and his resurrection. It is God's plan of redemption, God's plan of salvation for his people. Now, by the way, this is an important passage, I think, to understand in terms of if we want to understand how to interpret the Bible, because I've heard some people out there say, well, there are just so many interpretations uh, of the Bible out there that it's really hard to know uh, the right interpretation of the Bible, and I think that's true in certain cases and certain things, but at least when it comes to the bigger picture of ultimately what the Bible is about, Jesus actually gives us the key to interpretation. It is the Bible himself interpreting the Bible. It is Jesus himself giving us the correct interpretation of the Bible. And what he says is this, the key to interpreting the Bible is all about me. Everything is about me. Everything is about what I would do in order to bring salvation to you. And as you read more of the New Testament writings, there is this great shift that takes place with respect to how uh, the New Testament interprets the Old Testament and how the New Testament writers understand their scripture, the Hebrew scriptures, and even there we see that they see that it is all about Christ. Now, where did that come from? That, come from, that came from Jesus' Bible study right here. Right? He spent like 40 days with him before he ascended, and he's showing them this is what scripture was talking about this entire time. You see, one of the reasons why they had a hard time believing that Jesus resurrected from the dead is because their entire world, their entire perspective is shaped around a certain interpretation or a certain understanding of their scripture and in their understanding the messiah wasn't supposed to resurrect in the middle of history because the messiah wasn't supposed to die in the first place israel was supposed to be a great nation like it was during the reign of king david and some people think the early christians they probably invented the resurrection story but the reason why that's unlikely is because they could not even have imagined a resurrection in their own worldview and perspective The resurrection was a complete surprise to them. But Jesus, he enters into their world, he opens up scripture, and he begins to show them passage by passage that this is what it is all about. You know, it's interesting that Luke uses this phrase, their eyes were opened, right, in verse 31. Do you remember where else uh, in the Bible eyes were opened? Genesis 3. Genesis 3. You know, in Genesis 3, we're told that the eyes of both Adam and Eve were opened when? After they ate that forbidden fruit, after they disobeyed God. And when Adam and Eve's eyes were opened, suddenly they become aware of their nakedness and their shame. But here, Jesus, he opens the eyes of the disciples, and they don't see their nakedness and their shame anymore, but what they do see is 
this wonderful plan that God had from the beginning to save and to redeem his people. They saw that God had planned this all along and that Jesus had to suffer and die and rise from the dead in order to cover our nakedness and shame. See, their old way had to be deconstructed, and once Jesus deconstructed their old way of seeing, he opened their eyes to see things anew. And that led to their hearts being ready to be filled. And this is the second way that Jesus transforms their doubts. Jesus, he fills their hearts by filling his stomach. He eats with them. We said throughout the Gospel of Luke, uh, meals, the hospitality of Jesus, the fact that he eats with sinners and broken people and people who were outcasts and rejected in society, it tells us that uh, Jesus is here for the lost. He came for the lost. But we also said that when Jesus eats with someone, it is more than just simply sharing a meal, but it is an extension of fellowship. It's an extension of relationship. It is Jesus saying, I want to befriend you. I want to be in relationship with you because I accept you and welcome you into my kingdom. You know, it's a great act of hospitality where Jesus welcomes those who are broken and sinful to his banquet table. In Revelation 3, Jesus, he addresses the church in Laodicea, and uh, he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to eat with him and he with me. What is he saying there? What is he saying? What is he communicating as he eats with all these people, including his doubting disciples? He is saying this, I am here to be in relationship with you. And, you know, there's so many metaphors in the Bible to describe this. The eating metaphor is one way. We could also say that Jesus came to befriend us. We could also say that Jesus came to betroth us. We could also say that Jesus came to adopt us into his family. But whatever metaphor we use, we uh, conclude the same thing, that Jesus here is giving himself up for us that we might be with him. We could be sinners. We could be poor. We could be broken. We could be outcasts. We could be rejected people, and still Jesus wants to eat with us. And here we see that Jesus even eats with his disciples, his doubting disciples. And we can say that, yes, even Jesus wants to be with us, with our doubts. Through this presence, through his presence at this meal, where the hearts of the disciples are truly filled. You know, faith, true faith, I think, requires more than intellectual knowledge, and that's why you can't come to Christianity simply with the right doctrines or uh, just by reading books. Uh, those things are, of course, helpful, but those things are not enough. Uh, you also need to have your hearts filled through fellowship with him. And how do we do that very practically? Uh, practically, you do it through prayer and worship, and communing with him, even through the sacraments, when we celebrate the sacraments once a month. You know, if you're somebody who has, like, a bunch of knowledge of the Bible, and you could spout off the right answers, uh, maybe you've read a lot of Christian books, but if you're not somebody who has uh, a prayer life, if you're not somebody who is actually communing with God, if you're somebody who's not really worshiping with the people of God, then I think you know this. You'll, you'll feel something is always going to be lacking, because there is a sense in which we have to delight in Jesus and enjoy him, be in relationship with him, that we have to eat with him, 
or else Christianity is reduced to a system of philosophy or a set of moral principles. You know, there's a phrase in verse 41, and I don't know if you caught it and if you thought it was odd, but when I first read this statement, I thought it was a little bit odd. And in verse 41, it says, uh, and while they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. That phrase, disbelieved for joy, that caught my attention, and I wasn't sure what that meant. So I, you know, I opened the commentaries, and I tried to see what some of the scholars were saying. And uh, they think this, that Luke is essentially trying to show that the disciples thought that Jesus' resurrected presence was just too good to be true. Disbelief for joy, it was just too good to be true. Have you ever received good news that you just couldn't believe because it was so good, and you kind of maybe had to pinch yourself because, like, is this really happening to me? Well, you see, the disciples, their hearts are so full of joy because Jesus, they thought he was dead, they thought he was gone, and now he is really with them, but at the same time, they're thinking, oh, man, is this really happening, <laughs> right? This is just too good to be true. But you know, if it is true, then it would be the best news ever. Ever. Why? Well, we celebrated Easter, I think maybe, what, two months ago? And uh, if you were here on Easter Sunday, one of the things I said was, Easter Sunday is kind of like God's reset button. Most of us probably have regrets in life, right? Most of us know that we have done something wrong to another person, that we have offended another person. Most of us have probably experienced some kind of hardship. I think most of us know that all is not right in the world. There's a lot of hatred and a lot of conflict, a lot of racism, a lot of injustice. Politics is not right. There's class divisions. There's inequality. Most of us have probably experienced loss uh, even at this point in our lives. Some of us maybe have lost a loved one. Some of us, maybe we've lost a dream that we had. Maybe we lost an opportunity. Maybe we lost a relationship. Maybe we feel like we lost friends, especially in New York, as they move away, and maybe we feel a loss of community. Some of us have lost hope, lost comfort, lost security, and on and on and on it goes, right? Much of life, I think, is about losing, and it's an experience of loss. I think that's what makes life so hard. Why does the resurrection seem too good to be true? Because it means that if God is hitting the reset button on creation, then it means that one day there will be no loss, no sin, no death, no loss. Not only that, but it also means all things that we have experienced in this world in terms of loss will be redeemed and given to us a hundredfold in the new heaven and new earth. If Jesus was raised, then there is much gain. We gain new heaven and new earth, new creation, new bodies, new lives, new hope, new birth, new heart, new song, new identity. But most of all, we gain this new way of being able to relate to God, not as sinners, but now as precious ones redeemed by the blood of Christ. If the resurrection is true, we are accepted and adopted and embraced into God's glory. 
And it may seem too good to be true. But the real question is, what if it is true? (laughs) What if Jesus did really rise from the dead in history? And I believe he did. Then it is the greatest news ever. Ever. Let's pray together.